Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather each Sunday morning at 10.30 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now, here's this week's message from Hollyview Church as Pastor Joel concludes our study in 2 Samuel, preaching from 2 Samuel chapter 24 with a message entitled, The Place of Mercy. Well, we're here, and I am excited to preach to you because uh, it was actually January 24th of last year that we started the series in Samuel. We did both First and Second Samuel. We are closing out our series in Samuel today. It's been a year-long uh, series for the most part of the year. But looking back, and there's no way we could have like, predicted what that year was going to be like. Uh, and I trust that the Lord, as he speaks through his word, that through Samuel has shepherded us through this very uh, difficult and ups and downs year. And even this morning, uh, I pray that his word would speak to, to all of us. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I want to begin the message this morning by reading from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24. It's the last chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, if you need a Bible, it's in the pew in front of you. It's on page 259, 259. Good for you kids for reading along, page 259, 2 Samuel 24, and we'll start on verse 15. And can I ask you if, you can't, if you're able to just to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word? 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word on this snowy day, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would prepare our hearts for what you would have to say to each one of us, that you'd open our eyes, that we could see, you'd open our ears, we could hear. Lord, you'd soften our hearts so that we would fully understand what you'd have for us from your word this morning, and that he would launch us off in even this next year that lies ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and have a, have a seat. Thanks for standing. Well, on this, on this mountain in Jerusalem in the Middle East, uh, this uh, pestilence, this angel of pestilence is coming up right to the crest of Jerusalem, and he stretches his hand out, and it's in that moment that God says, stop, stay your hand. Uh, death and destruction were just about to come to David and his family and his friends and his family when the angel says, stop, right there. Uh, that place we're going to see in our text today, it's going to be very significant, but very significant for David. You can understand why. This disease, this pestilence is coming, death and destruction, and it's stopped at the last moment. And so this place becomes very meaningful to, to David. Places uh, tend to do that, don't they? They have very significant or meaningful uh, things for each of us. We can probably think of a, a childhood home or a place that you uh, were at when you got some big news. Places are significant. Uh, for me, uh, the, one of the most significant places is this place called Stranskopot Pit. 
Stranska Podpet. Uh, we have a picture of it up here. Uh, it's a place in Chinchur, Slovenia. It's where we lived. Uh, Stranska Pot. Stranska actually means side, and Pot means way. So it actually means it's the side way, or it's a side street. Uh, Slovenia, a beautiful country, and we lived right at the base of the Alps. If you could, the whole screen of uh, where Shinshur is, you'd see the Alps like cascading down from there right behind it. It's a small farming village. Uh, there were less than 2,000 people in this village. Uh, we had horses and cows going up and down uh, the streets. We didn't have a, a stop like a red light in the town. It was just a, a stop sign at the middle of t a town. And so you just walk everywhere. You knew every knew everyone. Uh, and we were able to rent that house on Stranska you can see it's not very big. Uh, it was right behind the old Catholic church in town. You can see the steeple just poking up, which meant that we could hear the bells very loud every hour, uh, on the hour, and then all the holidays as well. Uh, if just to the left there in that picture, you can see this white house. Uh, that white house on the, um, what's that called? Where's Mike? What's that? The header in the kitchen uh, was carved 1740. Uh, that house was built in 1740. Uh, no one lived in it any, anymore, but we still have some, we brought back some items from there, from that house to, to our house. Uh, but why that house is so meaningful to me is because for several years we invited people from all over the world, from Ireland and England and America. As they came and traveled through Slovenia, they stayed in our house. Uh, we had college students uh, staying with us for months at a time. Uh, significant parts of their life in that house, in, in a little spare uh, bedroom. Uh, that was the house that we first brought Abigail home from the hospital in. Uh, and if you're a parent, you know those feelings very well, those first nights of having this child at home going, I hope I don't like kill this child. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I remember walking up and down the hallway uh, with Abigail, who was screaming and going, Come on, child, just go to sleep. Uh, we have lots of memories for that house. Uh, but that's, that's, for, that's for me. In the same way, though, that Stranska Pot uh, means so much to me. It's, just, it's a big deal. We find the place that we're going to see in our story today has a really big deal to David. It has huge significance to David, but then also to all of Israel, to the whole nation. And we'll see it has huge significance for, for you and me as well. It's the place where judgment meets grace. Now you might understand like, okay, I understand why Sanskapot means a lot to me because you live there. It really doesn't mean, I mean, you look at that picture and it means nothing uh, to you. Um, and so you might even be thinking, uh, yeah, I get why it means something to you, but why should a place in the Middle East on a mountain that I've probably never been to 6,000 miles away, why should that have any significance for me? What, what does that mean for us here in boring Oregon, uh, something that happened 3,000 years ago and 6,000 miles away, why, why should I even care? Well, this brings us back to our text. We're going to see today that in this place, uh, there are three very significant positions of the hand of the Lord. And then we'll see why this place is so significant, why it should mean something to each one of us today as well. In that place, we're going to see three, three positions of the hand of the Lord. The first one is the striking hand, as there is sin in the land and God judgment is coming. We're going to see a stayed hand that doesn't fully outstretch and bring down judgment. It's a place of mercy. And then finally, we'll see a satisfied hand. And this is really the place of forgiveness and redemption. 
The striking hand, the stayed hand, and the satisfied hand. So let's look. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. The striking hand. This is where judgment uh, for sin in the land is coming in. So uh, once again, 24, 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So, uh, so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, basically from the north all the way to the south, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of the Lord are, are uh, Lord the King still see it, but why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? But the King's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the King to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aor, uh, Aor and from the uh, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley towards Gad, and on to Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity from your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let us not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Let's stop right there. I want to go back and see uh, how, how did all this begin? How did this sin enter the land and this judgment uh, for this sin? The very first thing we're told in chapter 24 is that uh, God is mad at Israel. Uh, God's mad at Israel, and yet we give no reason why. I, we're not quite sure why, but if you've read the story up till now, I'm sure you can uh, fill in some things. Israel had a knack for rebelling against the Lord. It had a knack for idol worship, of, of fleeing from the Lord, looking anything other than the Lord. Well, something had happened that made God, provoked God to anger again. Some sin from, from Israel. And so the response from the Lord then is that the Lord then incites David to count the people, to, to have a census. And, and then from that census, we see all these like dominoes are, are falling and things just uh, bad are, are happening as a result of that. 
This is a, it is a super confusing text. And if you read a bunch of commentaries, uh, depending on which commentary you read, you'd get a different slant on this. Uh, so I'm going I'm to pull back a little bit and tell you some of what I think uh, that the text makes sense to me in this. Uh, and also, I'm coming at it very humbly. Uh, so if you're like, if you've got a slam dunk answer, uh, you, you, you may not have read many commentaries. But I'll give you commentaries to read. Uh, and we'll see where, see where the text takes us from here and what we can, what we can see. See. Um, the first thing I want to tell you is that censuses were not a sinful thing. Uh, in, in fact, God had told the people of Israel to count people before for, for reasons of, of war or people or organization. Uh, censuses were not sinful, but, but there's something going on here uh, in David wanting to take this census. There's, there's something off. Uh, even the commander Joab's like, hmm, this is a bad idea. Let, let's don't do this, except we're not told what's bad. We know that, that counting is not necessarily bad, but it, it speaks maybe more to the motivation uh, of David's heart or the way in which he is doing that. Uh, the first thing that, that I found odd in this uh, is that we've just read a couple chapters before that Israel is now experiencing peace for the first time, that all of David's enemies were uh, conquered that, that we're finally at the place where there's peace in Israel. And so why is there a need to count your army if it's peace in Israel? Why are you uh, starting this, David? Why are you uh, counting all the people if there's peace? And then it ends up taking nine months and 20 days. So if you're about to go to war, there's a war brewing, and it takes you nine months and 20 days. You, that's, that's way too long of that. It just feels like it took... Uh, too, too long, and hence a little bit of, of the motive of David. What, what's David, why is he counting these people? What's, what's the reason? Well, that, that, could, be, that could be one, uh, but here's the, even a little bit more convincing argument, at least for me it was. Uh, during this time, when, it, when somebody counted something, it, it said that they were ownership of, I, I own this. Uh, you can kind of understand, uh, I can count the money in my bank account. Uh, but you can't count the money in my bank account. That's my money. Uh, and just like I can't count your money. Well, in that time, uh, you couldn't, counting something meant you owned it. Uh, so you could count your sheep, but you can't count your neighbor's sheep. Those are your neighbor's sheep. And, and so when a, when a king counted his army, it was basically saying, these are the people that belong to me. This is my army that's be, behind me, that, that, are, that are mine. We kind of understand that. Well, in the... Torah and the first books of the Bible, God gives instructions for how we're supposed to count and yet still acknowledge that the Lord has ownership of the people. Uh, he makes provisions for counting and still recognizing the Lord is the owner. Exodus 30 in verse 11. We get this little section of, of counting these censuses. Exodus 30, verse 11 says, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, there will be no plague among them when you number them. He says, so number them, but as you number them, they're supposed to give uh, like this coin back that actually ends up going to the, the tabernacle, but it's not a lot of money. It's a little money. It's representative of, of them going, hey, I know the king is counting us, but he recognizes that we're all the Lord's. We're, we're, the, we're the Lord's army uh, working for him and not the king. Well, in none of this section in 2 Samuel does David do any of that. Nine months, David counts the people, has them all go, but he's not following the Lord's instructions. 
He's actually taking something and claiming it for his own that's not his. Taking people that belong to the Lord and going, now you're mine, I want you. Uh, and the reason I think that's probably true in this case, again, humbly uh, presenting that, true in this case is because David's done this before. You know, do you remember another time where he took someone who wasn't his? Well, yeah, Bathsheba. Do you remember that? He's on the, he's on the, the roof of his house. He sees this beautiful woman and he takes her. Well, she doesn't belong to him, but he takes him and then ends up killing uh, Uriah uh, the Hittite, one of his mighty men, uh, to take someone that didn't belong to him. And what, so what's interesting in this then is if you look in 2 Samuel 23, the very last line, it numbers the, the mighty men of Israel and just presents them. It's not by age or anything, but the very last one we get to in 2 Samuel 23:39 ends with Uriah the Hittite. Uh, 37 mighty men in all, Uriah the Hittite. We go from Uriah the Hittite straight into David counting his people. I think we're supposed to have on the back of our minds the story of David taking people for himself and not recognizing the Lord's authority in his life. I think, this, I think that story we're supposed to have in mind that, we're, that David once again is taking this army and saying, these are my people, look what I have amassed, look at my power and my strength, and not recognizing, no, this is all from the Lord. So I want to stop right there, because I, I, I want to make an observation. I think it's a warning for all of us as well. Uh, I think whenever we take something that doesn't belong to us, uh, whenever we say, oh, the Lord doesn't really, not there, he doesn't care, uh, I'm going to take it for myself, a, a decision, uh, a glance, uh, anything that's not ours, and we take and we don't recognize that the Lord is actually in control of our life, we're actually in the same danger as David was. We're actually taking ourselves from God's protection and control, and we're going, I'm standing out on my own, and the striking hand of God in judgment is right where we place ourselves to. It's a dangerous thing to stand before a holy, righteous Lord. Well, David did that. He, he, he counts them, and for whatever reason, it, the sin is happening. If it's, it, he's taking them for his own, or if he's not doing it in the right way, whatever it is, he's sinning, and he's placing himself into the striking hand of the Lord. And, and so God talks to the prophet Gad and says, hey, go talk to David confront him with his sin. And so the Lord offers him three things. It's like your choose your own judgment uh, kind of thing. We do that with our kids sometimes too, right? Like, do you want one spanking or a week of whatever? Like, uh, not that we've done that in a long time. Uh, but uh, David's sin, the Lord goes, here's, here's three things you can choose. Uh, th three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, uh, or three days of pestilence. So three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And what's David decide? Well, he actually doesn't decide. I think he's very wise and says, uh, it's better for us to fall into the merciful hands of God than our enemies. That was his decision. If someone's going to judge me, please let it be the Lord and not anyone else. Uh, so he doesn't really decide, but he kind of does. He rules out number two. Three months of uh, you know, fleeing from your enemies. Let's don't do that one. They won't have mercy with us. The Lord, you'll have mercy with us. What will you, what will you do? So then God moves, and we find out that he sends this pestilence in. 
but really, behind this pestilence is this angel that is moving and, and striking the people. A pestilence is like a disease or a disaster, so, something bad that's, that's happening in the land. So in three days, 70,000 people die. We think sometimes the coronavirus tallies at the beginning were, were bad. Can you imagine three days in this small country, 70,000 people died? Which means that probably anyone in Israel knew someone that had died from this pestilence. And if you were, if you were sitting in Jerusalem, you would have heard the news from all over the land, from Dan to Beersheba, uh, that these people were dying. This pestilence was coming in. And yet somehow in Jerusalem, it seems that it hadn't touched them yet. They were high enough on the mountain. They were separated away. Maybe they quarantined from everyone else. But for some reason, the angel hadn't gotten to Jerusalem yet. So for three days, it's uh, just dark time, destructive in the land. And then we get to the place where the angel of pestilence, this angel of destruction, gets all the way up to Jerusalem. It crests the hill, and it's about to strike. Which for David and his family and his friends and his army meant death. And if it weren't for the mercy of the Lord, they'd be dead. It's really at this point, if you're reading along, that our story really slows down. Uh, the angel is on top of the mountain, the specific mountain of Jerusalem. He stretches out his hand to strike, and then he hears this voice, Wait! Stop! If it weren't for the mercy of God, they would all die. And really, this really brings us to our next position of the hand of the Lord, the stayed hand of the Lord. Number two, the stayed hand of the Lord. That really is the place where there's mercy. Verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among them, it's enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was at the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I've sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against, excuse me, my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word and as the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and the servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. The angel, he's up on the mountain. He's about to stretch out his hand to destroy the city. And a voice yells, stop. He's at this threshing floor. Uh, this place that would have deep significance for, for David. It's a place where judgment for his sin meets mercy in an instant. Stop, wait. Don't do it. Well, this place would be really significant to David too. Because David's great, 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 great grandfather uh, named Abraham was told by the Lord to take his precious son Isaac and go for a three-day journey. And they get to the, this place where the Lord instructs him, and they get up on the top of this same mountain. And there, as they're going up, uh, Isaac goes, Hey, look, we have, the, we have the wood or the tree for the offering, uh, the, for the fire. We have the fire, but we don't have a lamb. And Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. Well, they get to the top. Uh, 
Isaac somehow gets on the altar, and Abraham is there. And you remember the story, right? Abraham's there on that mountain, on a place that one day will be a threshing floor, with his hand raised to strike his only son. And as he's just about to strike and bring death and destruction to his son in hopes that the Lord would raise him again, the, the Lord says what? Abraham, stop. Don't do it. Just wait a minute. And then there in the bushes is a ram that they were able to bring over and sacrifice. There was a ram in place of his son Isaac. There was a substitute in the place. Well, this, that place would have a deep significance for David. Uh, just like the story of Abraham, the angel's hand is in the same position to strike and destroy the people of Jerusalem, the children of God. Uh, it's just about to come down and be destroyed. David, who knows if he was going to die, or his family, or his wives, or his friends. They're just about to be destroyed, and the hand stops. The place where judgment meets mercy. Uh, that would be a place for, for David as he would go on in his life, not very much longer, but as he would go on in his life when he would sin. He would need a place to go to receive mercy. Every time he sinned, he knew he was putting himself in the judgment of the Lord, of a holy, righteous God. And he'd need to return to some place. Where would he go? Uh, and so this place becomes a reminder of the mercy of the Lord, but also a very significant place in the future where the people of uh, Israel would go time and time and time again in their sin to receive mercy from the Lord at this threshing floor. The question that reminded me, where, where do I go when uh, I need to escape judgment for sin? How do, how do I respond? Where, where do I place myself when the striking hand of the Lord is coming down in His holiness and righteousness and goodness? Where do I find safety? Well, God has plans for this place. It's going to be a place, uh, not just mercy, but where judgment meets mercy. We come to our third point. And this is really the good news of the whole story. The third point here, the satisfied hand. The satisfied hand of the Lord where judgment meets mercy. Uh, verse 21. And Arona said, Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, Let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here, the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor, and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Uh, judgment meets mercy. In such a significant place as the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. Now, we've just seen, uh, as they went through and counted all the things, that they, they basically overcome all the land of Israel. The conquest that began in Joshua was nearing an end, but there was still one more place that didn't belong uh, 
uh, to the Israelites. And that was actually right next to where David was living. Uh, the Jebusites were uh, a little tribe, a Canaanite tribe that were in Jerusalem. And so the Lord has plans for that spot, the heart of Israel. So he sends David over to this spot where the angel's hand was stayed, where Abraham's hand was stayed, where the place for mercy. And, and he says, uh, this is going to be a huge, important place for you. I want you to buy it. I want you to purchase it. And the guy's like, oh, you can just, you can just have it. And he's like, no, 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 that won't do. Uh, I, I have to purchase it. We have to have a legal like, uh, transfer of things. This has to be ours. And I won't just take it for, for nothing. It won't cost me nothing to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, that, that place, that altar where he and David ends up setting and substituting a, a sacrifice, a, a substitute for the people of Israel, and really for himself too, the place of mercy, ends become super significant for the people of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 3, David has a son, and this son builds a temple. And the place where he builds that temple is significant. Second Chronicles 3, uh, starting in verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. You see, that place uh, was the place where the, the Holy of Holies in the temples was going to be. It was the place where the ark would set up. It's the place where the mercy seat would, would be, where, where judgment meets mercy, where sins would be atoned for. And so every year, every day, as the people would sin, they would need to do something with that sin. Where, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? And they would take a sacrifice or uh, some kind of uh, dove or goat or sheep, and they would bring it to that spot, and they would sacrifice it. But, but then they would go home, and they would sin again, and what did they have to do? Grab another sacrifice. Let's go back again. And over and over, as they go back to the temple, they're reminded that we're in the judgment of a holy God, but we've received mercy. And for years they would do this. Millions of sacrifices. How many little lambs? Until Jesus finally comes. The ultimate sacrifice. Who satisfies both Jesus' holiness, or God's holiness and righteousness, His justice, but also is able to offer mercy and grace. You know, we don't need uh, to go to Jerusalem if we have sinned against the Lord. We don't need to have a, a, a priest a sacrifice or pray for us. Oh, we need not a place, we have a person now where judgment meets mercy, and that's the person of Jesus. Uh, you know, the priests, they used to have to sacrifice over and over and over again. Stay the hand of the Lord. But it was all a reminder of, of the one that was going to come. They could finally uh, have judgment meet mercy. That justice would be completely satisfied and mercy and grace would be able to be offered in the person of Jesus. So the priest's job was done. They could sit down. Hebrews 10 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you skip down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Stop right there. That's good, right? Uh, the place where judgment meets mercy and is satisfied is in Jesus. Uh, nothing, that, nothing that you can do or you have to do over and over and over again. It's once for all. So that we have like this boldness now to go before the throne of God to ask for prayer. Uh, to talk to our Father. You know, what I find so interesting, we've spent a year going through the book of Samuel, looking at the, the people of Samuel, and then Saul, and then David, who seems to be this really complex hero that we want to do. And in the end of the book, how would you end the book of Samuel, telling this amazing stories that we're going to tell through generations? But it's not about David. Is it? It's, it's about this foreshadowing of, of this place that where judgment will meet mercy finally. This, this person of Jesus who comes along and pays the price as our substitute once and for all. So it's a, uh, if you find yourself in, in the place where you've, you've sinned or you feel like, man, I'm really straying off. Where do I need to go? There, there's a real call for you uh, to not stay in the place of sin uh, where God's striking hand of judgment is. And I know we don't like to talk about that very much, but really there's a place, the good news is there's a place that's sheltered in Jesus. If you find yourself in Christ, He's paid the price for your sins and offers you grace and mercy. You don't need to go to Jerusalem we just need to come to Jesus, where justice is satisfied, where you're able to receive mercy every day. And that's the good news of, of Samuel. Samuel launches us off uh, to Jesus, to the, the temple sacrifices for uh, the next thousand years, people longing for a time when they can finally uh, be out of the judgment of God and in His grace, that His stayed hand and satisfied hand would be on them. Uh, and that's the good news that we have today. Uh, let me pray, and we'll invite the worship team to come back up. Lord, thank you for the, the grace and the mercy that we receive because of the, the penalty and the, that we owed was paid for by Jesus. So thank, thanks for that justice has been satisfied in Jesus, the holy, righteous one, who gave his life for our place. As a, as a substitute, uh, as a place that we can find refuge and forgiveness and redemption. And Lord, thanks that uh, it's once for all. Thanks that we have that gift and that we have that confidence then to be able to enter the throne and to be able to pray to you, uh, that we can pray for other people. Lord, that we can call people uh, into your forgiveness and grace as well. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, 
rooted in God's Word to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.